Welcome to Impasto, a podcast about two art school ladies discussing the fun bits of art history. I'm Michelle. And I'm Paige. And we are now professional art historians, and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Suggestions and comments are welcomed via email at impasto.pod at gmail.com. Okay, so today I will be discussing Adelaide LaBille Guillard. And Paige, what will you be discussing today? Today, I'll be talking about William Wegman. All right, Paige, take it away. I'd love to hear about this. All righty. So, William Wegman is perhaps one of my favorite photographers. He's just on top of the list there, just for his way of doing things. So, Michelle, did you watch Sesame Street growing up? I did. (laughs) Did you? happen to see or do you remember a skit where there are dog heads on top of people bodies and they're doing things like cooking oh, or talking or anything yes. like that yes those happen to be william wegman's weimariners and he is actually oh. the narrator in those scenes as well as the filmographer for them so william wegman is the king of the Weimariner, <laughs> one might say. <laughs> that just sounds so dirty. It is not. <laughs> We're talking about a guy on a children's show, Michelle. I like to refer to him affectionately as the master of sit and stay. Mm-hmm. So William Wegman was born in 1943. He is an American artist best known for creating a series of composites involving dogs, primarily his own Weimariners in various costumes and poses. But the fun fact is, is that that's not what he originally intended and set out to do as an artistic expression. Mm -hmm. He was pursuing a career as a painter. He received his Bachelor's of Fine Arts in painting from Massachusetts College of Art and Design in 1965 and actually has a Master's of Fine Art in painting from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He received that in 1967. It's funny how artists never end up doing the thing that they think they originally will. (laughs) I think we can relate, Paige. (laughs) I can completely relate. He was actually approached by the Polaroid Corporation in 1978 to test out a brand new camera and brand new film, a large format Polaroid camera that the prints come out at 24 inches by 20 inches. So they're humongous. (laughs) Beautiful Polaroid, ginormous prints. So he originally said no. Mm-hmm. He told Polaroid Corporation, the largest I'll print is 11 by 14, and I only do black and white. He did what? not shoot color film. Mm-hmm. It was a bit, it's a big touchy subject for early photographers when color film starts becoming a thing is because they didn't, they thought it was too commercial. So they didn't <laughs> like it in fine art. <laughs> They're like, so. Ew. I don't know about you, but today Polaroid seems pretty commercial, very consumer-driven brand. It really I'm is. shocked <laughs> that he was like he eventually gave in and was like, "Fine, I'll do it." And but he started out with 
it's too commercial. It's too <laughs> commercial. The color. He it was primarily the color for him and the size. He was like, this, okay. it's not the kind of work I do. Remember, I'm a painter. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> so his early works were with his first dog, Man Ray. And Man Ray actually won Man of the Year or personality of the year, the year that he died, which was 1982. So the first works of William Wegman when it comes to his Weimaraners actually have to do with Man Ray. Man Ray was only alive for about three or four years of that work. Yeah, moving forward, it isn't until 1986 that he gets another Weimaraner named Faye Ray. And then her subsequent portrait is the one that is seen and all of her litters of children (laughs) are the ones that are the subjects of his later works so i have a question Um, yes was the first dog as popular as his second well the first dog is what got him the gig Mm -hmm. (laughs) the second dog is what kept the gig (laughs) oh so yeah okay so i was i guess where i was going with that question was did he get the first dog out of like an appreciation for the breed and then he got that money from him and he was like, I'm gonna get another. Fun <laughs> fact, Michelle, he didn't want a dog. His first wife wanted the dog. Oh my gosh, he did it for the money. <laughs> did it for the lady. He didn't want the dog originally and he told his wife we'll do a coin toss. Best out of five. Yes and no. All five were yes. And so he quotes it as being destiny that Mm -hmm. him and man ray were able to create this bond and have this kind of relationship i would love to share some fun facts about william wegman that you michelle may not realize he's done and been in he worked with one of five of the polaroid cameras that Mm -hmm. were able to photograph on this size he took over fifteen thousand polaroid pictures good lord Mm -hmm. and across the lifespans of 14 dogs oh my gosh photographed a total of 14 dogs that seems like a lot of dogs and i'm assuming are they all the same dog well i mean it's it's weimariners and i think there's you know a few other types in there but it's primarily weimariners yeah interesting name it it is it is a fun name to say (laughs) (laughs) His work has been with popular commercial success. He's had books, advertisements, films. Like I said before, Sesame Street. He was on Saturday Night Live. He was there for it. He's published over 40 books, 20 of which are children's books. What? Yep. They are there are children's books that are that have the dogs dressed in costume and they are so cute. <laughs> you know, I, must I guess say. That, that does make sense, I guess, cuz like who would love to see pictures of dogs in animal clothing with, you know, primary colored backgrounds. Children, mm-hmm. children would love to see children that. Children love it. They dig it. They are about it. When you were speaking earlier about how he was gearing towards commercial use, he has a very open and I would think progressive idea of what art is, especially from when he started in the late 70s. He's fierce about the fact that the works are not site-specific and they could be seen and disseminated and they could have an audience that isn't just limited to the wall of a gallery in New York. So that's his idea. Like, that's where he was coming from. That's a direct quote from him. He thinks art is for everyone and art can be anything. He is quoted as 
saying that this is kind of poking fun at art. Like he's wanting to push the boundaries of all these different styles. So in his images of these dogs, they're very, he's playing in all of these different types of movements. Like it's very obvious, like there's some like surrealist intention drawn from it. There's portraiture, there's classics where sometimes there's even like a, a bus, like a sculpture that is mm-hmm. also in the piece. I got a lot of really great information from an Aaron Hicklin Guardian article that you can find online. And then there's also a really great interview with him done by PBS so you can find on YouTube. He just really went out and did it all. Not only did he have a brand deal with Polaroid, mm-hmm. he also had brand deals with Gucci, with West Elm. Oh, and apparently, this uh, jacket brand, I am not familiar with because I am but a humble art student. <laughs> it is apparently a Max Mara iconic coat. He was partnered with them to shoot, uh, I think, eight pictures all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a series of eight Polaroids titled Dogs in Coats that came with the re-release of 30 of the limited edition jackets that came with a print with it. How much do you think this jacket goes for? I don't know, considering I don't know it, and it sounds very much like a luxury item, I'm gonna go with 20G and up. It's not that bad. Not Um, that bad, it's But it's still pretty bad. I mean, it's $4,000, but... For a jacket. Yeah, you're right. That is pretty expensive. It's like, ooh, uh, I think I'm good. I'll pass. I'll just be cold. (laughs) Um, So when it comes to dressing the dog as a human, something that he was very obviously not wanting to do was dogs playing poker. (laughs) Because immediately, (laughs) like when you think dogs and art, some Mm -hmm. people immediately will go, the dog playing, playing poker. poker. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, because it's so iconic, though. It, I mean, it is iconic, but it's like the Last Supper, but like a little bit more uh, humorous, but more common, man. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Bringing it down to our level, like something we understand: poker, gambling. We don't understand Jesus. Dog. These days. <laughs> Dog. You ask yourself why a Weimariner. Yeah, apparently Why? it was his wife. But... What is it about the Weimariner? Is it because so. it's gray? Is it because they're good and obedient dogs? Yes. Well, Michelle, I'm so glad that you asked. See, it's a hunting breed. Oh! And so the dog originally was intended to be able to freeze and point at something. Oh. So they're very good at instructions on uh, a sitting and a staying. Is he described them as spooky and shadowy? Oh. Yes. I love the shadowy, like, idea. That makes a lot of sense. Another, I'm just going to read you a few quotes by him. Because I think that, of course, the artist's words himself make the most sense in understanding his intent. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say my favorite line. It's an expression. (laughs) But he says that. They're very much like people mm-hmm. that they have canine features, but human affections, like a mythological creature that exists in dreams. There's also that that joke about how is your dog a dog or is it a human trapped in a dog's body? They have very mm-hmm. soulful eyes. Mm-hmm. I feel that way about 
Weimaraners. Like, they look like they're a sick Victorian child. <laughs> and they're trying to communicate with me what they want. And, and I, I feel that on a deep level. He was trying to put the ordinary out of sync. So he wanted to challenge us to understand and think about what is art and what is portraiture? Is this mm-hmm. pushing a boundary somewhere in between or are we making fun of art? Is this a expression on the BS that can sometimes come from art and especially like the absurdity and the theatricality of these types of images. But he also says that the dog doesn't need to be dressed up to appear to have human qualities. He made little to no effort to anthropomorphize. Is that that a word? We're not sure. We're going to continue with the sentence. (laughs) And Ray. And yet, he is clearly my counterpart in the work. I think that is how we are wired to see ourselves. So he is not seeing Man Ray as a dog. He's seeing Man Ray as a character and he's playing a part. A particular look. Like there there's not a whole lot of dogs that look like this. It's they stand out and their legs are so long. They're mm-hmm. kind of creepy. Like I said, spooky Victorian child. They have very distinct features, a little bit exaggerated. They got those big floppy ears, the beady eyes, long legs. It's very much a Tim Burton style dog. Yes. Like the dog itself looks like a caricature. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he just does a he just does a fantastic job of transforming the dogs into these characters that we can like weirdly relate to and weirdly like accept as humans. Like again, going back to the Sesame Street thing, like I had no idea that that was who this was. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, well maybe subliminally my mind knew." And it was like, "Yes, you love art." Sesame Street art <laughs> will lead to greater things, Paige. Just hang with us. <laughs> Sounds so creepy. <laughs> it does it does sound a little frightening now that I think about what I said. But this is very normal, I guess, to us because we see whole Instagrams dedicated to cats, to dogs, mm-hmm. lizards. I mean, we're we're here and we live in a time where they are characters in their own sense. This is just a really shining example of that because, I mean, I don't see Pot Roast the Cat from TikTok wearing Gucci, which I'm, you know, I'm sure she's, you know, not above or beneath. What I'm hearing is Wegman was the very first of the personal dogstagram. <laughs> I'm about a dogstagram. He was, he was the first influencer for it. And because he was so original with his work, yes. his doggies then were able to wear the Gucci and everyone else is just following in his footsteps. Basically, yes. And was just like, I know my value. I know where the world is going one day and I'm going to be the first. But I would like to end on on a piece of a little mind kernel. That we can think about. The dogs could be funny. But they also had to be beautiful. And more mysterious. Even when I made them as tall as people. I love I love how he's like. Dead set on the spooky. <laughs> it's like they're spooky. <laughs> creep me out. I want them to creep you out. Alright. Thank you so much Paige. For this enlightening discussion. Of Wegman and his spooky doggies. Spooky dogs. We love to see it. (laughs) 
All right, I think now would be a perfect time for us to take a small break and move on to some fantastical art trivia. Hey everyone, Paige here. I apologize in advance for the quality of the mic in this next segment. Bear with us or just skip on through it, but it is still funny. Sorry in advance. Do you want to start? Um, First question. Yes. What art movement literally means the style of the wild beasts? <laughs> your face. Okay, I'll give you your options. You have yes. options. Fauvism. Fauvism? Fauve. Um, art. Bruh. Brut. Brute. Brute. Oh, shit. <laughs> I think that one. <laughs> Wait, there's more. <laughs> Primitivism. Oh, shit. Or fluxus. <laughs> there's this art movement again. <laughs> we know what that one is now. Yes. Um... Is it Art of the Beast? The Wild Beasts. Oh. In art movement that literally means the style of, quotations, the wild beasts, end quote. You know, my brain oddly goes to primitive, <laughs> but it might be Art Brute. Ha <laughs> ha. Funny, Paige, you're wrong on both. <laughs> It's Fauvism. Fauvism? I don't know the name. But is the style of Les Fauves? It's French. For the wild beast, the leaders of the movement, Henri Matisse and André Durain, emphasized vivid expressionism and unnatural use of color over representational or realistic values. Great. I, too, thought it was primitivism. <laughs> and this... This trivia was like, no, Michelle, please get a brain. <laughs> well, I know that Fauvism came, like, almost immediately after Impressionism. And, like, Van Gogh even did some stuff in the style of Fauve or whatever. Like, people classify his stuff as Fauvism. Wow. Idiot. We're, we're, we need to uh, brush up on our, uh, <laughs> our movements. Obviously. We're just terrible. <laughs> All right. Hit me in the Louvre Museum. All right. Mona Lisa has its own what? What does she have? In the Louvre? In the Louvre. Um, I feel like she has a lot of her own things. Um, I think she has her own, like, uh, what do you call that? Safe, maybe? Yeah. Or perhaps she has her own wall because everybody wants yeah. to stare at her. I don't know what she has. I guess she has her own protective barrier as well. Like, she literally has a box over her face. So, I don't know. I feel like well, these are all true. <laughs> but she has her own mailbox. What? Yes. The Mona Lisa receives love letters regularly, which is why, out of all the artworks in Louvre Museum, Mona Lisa has her own mailbox. Who reads her the love letters? Does she just collect them? Does a sad, like, art attendant, like, collect them and read them at home? And they're like, oh, if only someone loved me this much. <laughs> they're like, no, you get to love me. Like, they write them back and they're just like, hey, I know this was for the Mona Lisa, but I feel like we have a true connection. <laughs> 
Oh my god, that is the next rom-com of the century. <laughs> it's like, you've got mail, but... Oh god. It's like Letters to Juliet. Like, you know that movie? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it would be very similar to that, but a little bit more creepy. Oh, got it. <laughs> doesn't know. I know who you are, but you don't know who I am. <laughs> and you love art. I love art. Okay. Specifically, the woman that is also a man. Also, but I... <laughs> why? I feel like we can all appreciate Mona Lisa. But if I loved her to the point of... I wouldn't write her love letters, actually. I don't think I love her enough to, one, find out she has a mailbox, and two, write a love letter. <laughs> to the mailbox. Right? I wonder if it's, like, kids. Oh. Like, why you no smile? Right? I have many questions for you. If you could just like fill this out for me, return it. I would agree. Jake, yes or no? <laughs> All right. Moving on. Okay. Next question I got for you, Paige. How old is the earliest known human artwork? Um, I got I got four options for you, friend. Okay. One point eight. Four million years old, a hundred thousand years old, six thousand years old, or twenty-seven thousand years old. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be real with you. I got this wrong three times. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <sighs> See, we run into that problem of like mistaken art objects too. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, earliest known, like, supported evidence. We know it was indeed an artwork. It was intentional. You were meant to stare at it and appreciate <laughs> their talent. 6,000 years. Haha, -ha, no. <laughs> You're wrong. It makes me feel better that you also got it wrong. <laughs> Okay. What is it? It's, it's 100,000 years old. Okay. So, in 2002, Chris Henschelwood discovered a piece of ochre decorated with a delicate geometric pattern in Blombos Cave on the southern Cape Coast. He dated the piece conservatively at 77,000 years old. In fact... It could be as much as 100,000 years old. Ta-da! This was a rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that it's a geometric pattern is so interesting, too, because I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, a lot of my classes with, like, ancient art, a lot of, like, these, um, these societies would go through certain periods with their artwork, mm -hmm. and a lot of them would start out as utilitarian, and then they would start decorating those utilities, you know, and then it would go from, like, geometric to natural figures to more complex figures, and then mixing them as well. So to know that this was a geometric pattern, I wonder if there was actually even earlier forms, and we just haven't found them because it's 100,000 years old, you know? How do they... Come up with the geometric ideas. Right? I don't know. Um, aliens. So I guess like it's. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like us. Like you realize that the sad Walmart dishes in your pantry 
or indeed sad and you're like let me spend a little bit more more money on something you know that needs to be decorated and so i guess it's the same mental process it's like these are some sad ass dishes we're using let's put a pattern on it like let's see what we can do bro this rock is boring <laughs> it's yeah. like the it's like the audio add a little bit of spice yeah you gotta it's like draw a triangle <laughs> And I guess, like, geometric pattern is way easier than trying to, like, draw, like, a human face yeah. or, like, an animal. Like, we don't have that skill. We're not born with that skill. We don't come out of the womb going, I can paint a freaking horse on the side of this cup and it's going to look majestic. No, <laughs> we cannot do that. We can barely draw circles. So I bet you these people were like, we're going to do some squares and we're going to hope it's good. <laughs> We're just gonna call it good. Yes. <laughs> All right. Amazing. <laughs> okay, huh. this one's easy. This one's easy. We know it. I know it. I love it. We talked about it. It's gonna be great. What art movement developed in the early 18th century as a reaction against the grandeur, symmetry, and strict regulations of the Baroque? All right. Uh, we. <laughs> I say. Oh, is it the Rococo? There we go. Yes, <laughs> yes, Rococo developed in the early 18th century in Paris, France, as a reaction against the grandeur, symmetry, and strict regulations of the Baroque. It was ornate and used light colors, asymmetrical designs, curves, and often had playful themes, but the style has endured harsh rhetoric from some critics who characterize it as superficial and of poor taste. Oh, uh, first of all, fight me. I love Rococo, but you know. <laughs> Moving on. Well, since we discussed Mona Lisa earlier, I did find the appropriate trivia page. <laughs> oh, damn. Okay, let's hear it. Let's hear it. <clears throat> since we just talked about her and her lovely face, how long did it take Leonardo da Vinci to paint the Mona Lisa smile? The smile, oh, I remember, it was, like, super long. He, like, painted everything else except for her freaking smile because he couldn't get it right. I remember that. It was probably, like, a couple years or something, weeks okay. or years. What? You ready for your options? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that part. 16 days. All right. 16 weeks. 16 mm -hmm. months. Mm -hmm. 16 years. I feel like it's somewhere between weeks and months. There's no way it took 16 years to paint some lips. It, I don't know. You're looking at me kind of crazy. Is it 16 years? Don't be sad. There's no way. No, I'm going to say 16 months. You're wrong. What? It's <laughs> 16 years. What? Six His greatest triumph is the smile of Mona Lisa, which he started working on in 1503 and continued laboring over nearly until his death 16 years later. His distinctive approach was to apply the glaze in extraordinarily thin strokes and then very slowly over months and years apply additional layer upon thin layer. The result is a masterpiece that invites and responds to human interactions, a smile that seems to react to our gaze. Maybe that's why people are obsessed with her. I don't know. I feel like this man just had a really great way of saying I have terrible ADHD. <laughs> I forgot yes. about my project and I would come back <laughs> once a year and work on it and get distracted again. 
that's exactly what I think it probably could be. Like he he was a man of many talents. He just was worried about other things at the moment. Right? Like the fact that he had so many other hobbies or passions. Hobbies. Like, the fact that he had so many, I'm like, this man probably had ADHD. It was just yeah. undiagnosed, yeah. and so he was able to become a master at so many other things. So, I feel like that's what this is. He probably just got distracted and was like, oh, shit, Mona Lisa, I gotta work on that again. And then <laughs> when probably asked about it, he was like, oh, no, I'm on perfecting. Yeah, yeah, that's like some <laughs> bullshit answer, I'd say, too. Like, Procrastination, Leonardo. Someone was like, Michelle, how's your art degree coming? Um, I'm still working on it. It's it's so unique, my degree. I'm doing <laughs> such thin layers. <laughs> I'm just taking one class at a time. I'll be done eventually, but you're going to be really proud by the time I'm done. <laughs> it's going to be a masterpiece that reacts to the way that you look at it. <laughs> and everybody's going to want to send her a letter. Right? Everyone's going to just, no, actually send me money when I graduate because your girl will be in debt. <laughs> Ready to take it away? Oh my gosh, I am. Actually, no, I'm wildly unprepared this week, but it's great. Okay, I today am going to be discussing Adelaide Le Bille Guillard. She was a French painter during 1700s until her death in 1803. She was really cool. She was a French miniaturist as well as a portrait painter, and she advocated for women to receive the same opportunities as men to become great painters. I love this woman. She, oh my God, I just love her so much. Okay. <laughs> Adelaide Le Guillard is one of the few women in this world who was able to somehow climb her way up to the top and paint for aristocrats, the super wealth, wealthy people. She started as a miniaturist. She was able to do like these miniatures for big clientele. She's duchess and eventually worked her way up to the princess of France, Madame Adelaide, was just kind of confusing because the both of their names are Adelaide because of her connections with people. And it was from, you know, her father raising her that way. And they were able to make those connections because of that. The queen or the princess was able to be like, yo, could y'all like maybe let her into the academy? And at the time, women weren't really allowed into the academy. Like you had to be wildly exceptional and basically forced to be allowed into the academy, right? Like, it was men's only. It's a boys club, basically. And the academy is if you had all of these opportunities, just these connections, you're able to travel, show your work. And so many of the famous artists we know today went through the academy. They were trained there. And obviously, you know, women weren't allowed because the way they trained, they had, you know, the nude model. And you cannot affect a woman's innocence by letting her look at naked people. Which, you know, arguably you need to look at nude people in order to understand, like, proportions of the body and things like that. So anyway, they were restricted. She was one of the first women to do it because Marie Antoinette was like, yo, um, y'all about to let her in here. And they were like, yes, ma'am, we will not argue with you. So she was able to train and it was so great because her self-portrait with her two peers, it hangs at the Met in New York City. I was able to see it in November completely fangirled over it i swear so let me tell you about this painting that just 
makes my day. As we know, when girls go into a field that boys don't like, they try to tear them down or find excuses as to why they cannot be in it. Did, did this really great self-portrait and it's showing her sitting, working on an easel. She's painting. We're not sure what it is. The painting is actually facing away from us. She's sitting down in like this beautiful satin blue gown with white trimmings and ribbons. Atop her head is this, you know, high fashion uh, hat with feathers on top. Her hair is curled. Her, the bodice is actually really low dipping. I uh, see her breasts like proudly pushed up and showing off. And behind her are her two pupils, which are two women. And like I was saying before, she was huge into helping women become artists. She was an advocate for it. So while she was at the academy, she wasn't technically allowed to teach others. Because she had her name at the academy, she was indeed allowed to take peers elsewhere. So with these two pupils behind her, they actually lived with her at the time. And so she was super maternal towards them. She taught them everything she knew. She also cared for them personally. And they're obviously in this painting very, you know, attentive to what she's doing. One is looking at what she is doing. The other one is looking at the viewer of the painting, just as Adelaide LeBillard is looking at you as well. It's super, super great. A sculpture of her father in the background. And y'all know I'm very into like symbolism and like meanings of paintings. So let me explain some of this for you so you can feel the heightness that I feel for this painting as well. So many men would ever painting sculpture because whoever did sculpture was already a master of the arts, right? And to paint it and successfully paint it was saying, I am better than a master of art uh -huh. and so men were like i can do this they're real full of themselves but when when women would not do it one it, they would be like looked down upon the only way a woman could do something like this is if the sculpture represented something bigger than her the sculpture is of her father who had recently passed away and she was like no, I'm not painting this sculpture to prove how good I am. No, I'm just remembering my father. This is an honor of him. And who's going to argue with a woman who just lost her dad? Like, you're not going to argue this. But you also can't deny that she just perfected a freaking sculpture in the background. She's like, hey, hey fuck you. Sorry. She's flexing. <laughs> Right, she is talking about her dress and like her accessories. Another big thing during this time was the ability to show different textures, contrast, palette, and she was able to do this in here. You can clearly see the shine and the ruffles of her dress. If you look at her dress, there's no, it's nothing but ruffles and crinkles, and you can see each distinguished one. It, there's no denying it's satin. You can see the ribbons on her wrists. You can see the lace. You can see the fluffy feathers on top of her head, the textured hair. And it's in the highest fashion. So you're aware of what she looks like. She is like, I know my worth. I am very much a classy woman. I know what I'm doing. And she's flexy. She's at the center of her own portrait. She's like, yeah, this is about me. But then again, you don't want to flex too hard, right? Because then you're boasting. So another way to bring her down just a little bit. She's like, no, no, no. I'm teaching these young girls behind me. 
maternal guardian, you know? That's the reason her bodice is so low, that low neckline. And there's a reason her, her boobs are, like, pressed up this way. It's actually a nod towards maternal paternity, I guess. Uh, yeah, boobs are actually, yeah, they're, they go. So they're with, out? Yeah, well, they're not out. They're pushed well, up. They're very prominent. There's no denying she's got boobs. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just confused. So, I guess up in, I guess I'm getting confused with, like, our modern idea of what a boob means. <laughs> yeah. Up until this point, and I guess a little bit past this point, if a boob was out, that mm -hmm. meant mother, like a maternal sibyl. Yes, because yes, I don't feel like I feel like uh, modern day has really fetishized boobs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas you know, 1700s, a boob was meant to feed your kids, like. <laughs> And that was the only thing. And yeah, and that was it. I mean, yeah, yeah, there was some sexual, like some sexuality with it, of course. But no one would look at this and be like, oh, you trying to, you trying to get some, what's up? Like, <laughs> see what you got? Yes. And especially during this time too, like, let's think about like the historical context of this painting. Yeah. You know, femininity is beginning to really take a rise during this time. And femininity at this time is talking about, you know, happy wife, happy life, right? Basically, people wanted to be happy in their marriages. They wanted to marry for love because, you know, before this, it was you married for power, you married for connection, and it usually only fell on the firstborn son to marry others. And most people didn't really get married. It was expensive. It was unnecessary. A lot of people were unmarried and happy and just lived with a spouse, and it was fine. So really difficult, you know, for Singman to be like, I am totally feminine, and then people would be like, well, are you a mother? No. Well, how are you feminine? So also came back on that. And so they to have a maternal connection with her peers and put that on display as well. She was, you know, told in that way. She was like, yeah, I'm not technically a mother, but I still care for people, you know, in a way. She was able to form a bond with the crowds who were, you know, loving maternal feminine idea with the boobs pressed up and with the people behind her not boasting about herself she was able to able be able to say oh you're taking this into your hands to teach these young girls and make you think you're better and you're a teacher right because that wasn't allowed at the time not really instead it was like no 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 i'm just taking them under my wing i'm just showing them what i do it's totally fine and so consistently showing off her talent and her skill but, like, completely downplaying it at the same time and outsmarting her peers right now. Like, everything she's doing is going against what they think and know. And, like, the size of it was another thing. This painting is huge. It's, like, five foot tall. <laughs> I know. I was walking through the Met, and I don't know why, but for some reason this painting was, like, three by three in my brain. Really bad at, like, <laughs> actually understanding size. So when I was, like speed walking through the Met because I was I just really wanted to find this painting it is like in the center of a huge room standing on its own basically I mean there's like two other small portraits on either side but this one takes up a huge space and when you see it it's so amazing it's so big and that's another way of saying you know she was a talented artist you know she being a miniaturist you know all little paintings that you would carry with you to someone who was able to paint on a grand scale successfully this was able to pull in you know more patrons as well as prove her worth no one could talk shit against her 
and it was great. She's just amazing. And there's just more behind her, and it's a little fuzzy. I need to do more research on her. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since I've read about her, but um, a really cool thing about her is that she advocated for women so she would actually go up to the school even though she wasn't allowed to teach she'd be like y'all need to let these girls in here um and this is why and she would like stand up for them it was super great and she would try to make connections for them she would try to show off their artwork she would stand behind them and i loved it because so many people would try to stop her from climbing the ropes there was someone right before this piece was shown exhibited they decided to start rumors about her saying she was sleeping with her uh, professor basically and her ruin her reputation and she wouldn't be able to be displayed so instead she was like yeah you're not gonna bully me into this i'm actually gonna take this into my own hands and she wrote to the duchess at the time and she was like yo i need your husband the duke to back me up on this one she was like, I am, I just lost my father. I'm in mourning. Someone's like about to mess with my reputation. I'm just trying to vibe. And <laughs> with that, they were actually able to take down the articles that were about to be sold the day before. So they were going to print it, right? They were going to put it in a newspaper mm -hmm. that like, just ruined her reputation. And the Duke was just like, nah, we ain't having that. And they took them down. Like, they went and had a talk with the guy. And he had to, like, reprint, like, a, uh, like an apology. I can't remember what it's called. But, yeah, so it was never printed. And then he did an apology to her and be like, no, she's so great. I love it. Uh <laughs> Early Twitter beef. Right. Yes. Yes. I loved it. She was just so smart for her time. And I loved her so much. Everyone says that she was, like, enemies with Vichy Lebrun. I don't know. I guess Le Billard, I I was so intrigued to hear her name. Because I don't think she's as... as famous as lebron i'd say because marie antoinette you know they want to chop her head off right um <laughs> to put it lightly yeah yeah but le bill guillard she survived the revolution one of the you know the few aristocrats who was able to escape and continue her artwork for rich people without dying you know eat the, eat the rich yeah they, they did not eat her so that was nice like this woman was just beyond her time very yeah. smart woman very talented woman i love everything she does uh there's more to this painting and i just can't remember it all but yes just i love it you, you should famous one is the portrait of madame adelaide the princess of france mm -hmm. and it's a portrait of her family and it's just oh gosh it's so smart because in that one she's painting a painting and she puts another sculpture in there and she's just flexing she's like but you're not about what you're talking, talking about. about the one where she's in red, red. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so this one she's flexing hard and she can because you're not about to shit talk a princess yeah. <laughs> she was so smart about it she's like oh i'm doing it it's just in the background yeah she's like i'm just doing it in remembrance of her family oh my gosh y'all but the whole time everybody's like we know what you're doing <laughs> we see I could have been able to meet her. I feel like she would have been like a hardcore feminist mm -hmm. in today's time. She would have yeah. been like that person at the the parades and the protests holding signs. Actually, no. She'd be like the social media content person with thousands of followers, I bet. Sir? Or willing to stand up to some stuffy old white men and be like, yo, we deserve a spot. 
<laughs> oh yeah. We, we have, have our early, early Instagram, Instagram influencers. influencers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like that's what they would have been. been. <laughs> All right. This has been such a great podcast, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to hearing you next week. Yeah. Uh, we hope you like this podcast. If you liked it, please let us know at imposto.pod at gmail.com for any comments, suggestions. We're just letting us know, you know, what you'd like to hear next week. Yeah. All right. I guess that wraps up. up.